Well, good morning, Life Points Church. And uh, again, happy Father's Day. I know we said it before, but man, we are so incredibly thankful. As a church, we're blessed to have some incredible dads here. And uh, you know what? Again, let's just, let's just give it up. Let's give a hand to all the fathers and the father figures in the room today and the blessing that they are in our lives. Well, uh, if day num is, today is day number one for you or day number 100, we are so glad, we're so thankful that you're here today. As uh, Dean introduced me earlier, my name is Andrew, and I have the privilege of serving as one of, the, one of the student pastors here at our Lewis Center campus. So if you're a teenager in the room and I haven't had to meet the chance to meet you yet, What's up? How's it going? We would love to, to have you come and hang out on a Sunday night in the days ahead. We don't have anything going on tonight for students because it's Father's Day, but next Sunday night we'll be back. We have all kinds of stuff. We've got inflatables. We'll have free Kona ice for any 6th through 12th grade students that show up. And this is pretty cool. Our, our LifePoint students team that, that helps lead worship for students is going to be releasing the first ever LifePoint students original song next Sunday night, which we're pretty excited for as well. So you should come hang out on a Sunday night in the days ahead. And if you are in the room today and you're the parent of a teenager, to you I would say, I'm praying for you. <laughs> it's difficult, but we love them. We love teenagers, right? Uh, well, you have joined us today in the middle of a series that we're calling Labels, which is a study of the Gospel of Luke. We're calling the series Labels because it seems like Luke has written his Gospel specifically and intentionally geared towards people who feel far from God, who maybe feel like there's this distance between them and God that, that can't be spanned. And we think that, if we're honest, we probably all feel that way sometimes, right? Which is why Luke's Gospel makes sense for a lot of us. Uh, the big idea that we've been using for this series is that the gospel, this good news about Jesus, calls us to a life that is above labels. What do we know? We know that as we go throughout life, people are going to be quick to try and label us. Or sometimes we even begin to, to label ourselves. And if we're not careful, our labels can become our limits. We can begin to define ourselves in ways that God never intended us to. We can begin to carry things that God never intended for us to carry. So by opening up to the Gospel of Luke, which is what we're going to do today, and, and beginning to apply these truths to our lives, we can begin to say the things about ourselves that God says about us, and we can begin to believe the things about ourselves that God believes about us. So that leads us today to Luke chapter 10, and the story of the Good Samaritan, and the label of neighbor that we're going to be applying to our lives. So if you have the copy of the scriptures with you today, you can go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 10, verse 24. That's where we're going to start. And while you're opening there, I'll tell you that this specific story that we're going to read today is one of the parables of Jesus that we find in the New Testament. In fact, this may be the most popular parable that, that Jesus ever told. I would say probably definitely top three. A parable is an untrue story told by Jesus. And he told these stories for a variety of different reasons. One of them was that in telling a parable, it was a way for him to help his his audience, his followers, his listeners, begin to understand the world, to begin to see the world the way that he saw the world. A lot of times they had these like moral or these ethical elements to them that were just totally different from the way that people saw the world at the time of Jesus. But again, he wanted people to see the world the way that he saw the world, the way that the world was intended to be. We like to say that he was establishing the kingdom of God here on earth. 
Another reason that Jesus would tell these parables is to help his followers, his audience, begin to understand his role in this kingdom of God that he was establishing. So anytime we come across a parable in scripture, which is what we're going to do today, we, we have to be mindful because if we take it at just its moral or its ethical implications, it can cause us to, to maybe miss the mark, miss the fullness of what God has for us in these stories. So again, today we're in Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 25. And what I'd love to do is I'd love to begin by just reading this story in its entirety. We're going to go 25 to 37, because I think this is just an amazing story. And I want you to, to experience all of it together. And then I'll go back to the beginning and we'll read it. And we'll talk about what it means and how it applies to our lives. So here we go. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 through 37. Here's what it says. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among the robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went up and he, he bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus then says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, those who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, now you go and do likewise. So the setup that we're given for this story is that Jesus is teaching a crowd of people. And in this culture, what you would do is, if you were the speaker, you would, you would speak to the audience, and the audience would be sitting down. And if you wanted to engage with the speaker, you would stand up as a sign of respect. So the lawyer begins his interaction with Jesus on the right foot. He begins by showing Jesus a sign of respect. But Luke writes that very quickly this lawyer's intentions are made clear. Luke writes that the lawyer is here to test Jesus. When we, when we hear lawyer today, what we need to know is this title lawyer means that this man that Jesus is interacting with is a master of the Jewish law, which was given in the first five books of the Bible. So when it says that the lawyer, the master of the law, is here to test Jesus, what that means is he's come to this place today with, to make his entire goal to debate Jesus. He's here to challenge, he's here to, to draw out the teaching of Jesus and see like maybe Jesus is a false teacher and he's going to question he's going to pressure, he's going to push back, he's going to try to expose. He wants to maybe even turn the crowd against Jesus. He wants to bring charges against Jesus. He's here, and he's going to ask questions, but he's doing it with mixed intentions. This week, as I studied this lawyer character a little bit more, I realized that he sounds a lot like my seven-year-old son. Uh, my son, Caleb, he, he's been doing this thing where he'll, he'll go to his mom, and he'll ask a question. He'll say, hey, mom, can I watch TV? And she'll say, yeah, sure, why not? And then he'll come to me and I'll ask the same question. He'll say, hey, dad, is it, 
is it okay if I watch TV? And I'll say, no. And uh, he'll go, well, mom told me I could. And I'm like, then, then why did you ask me? If you already got the answer you wanted, I don't, I don't understand what the point of that was. And this is his response. I kid you not. He goes, I just wanted to see what you'd say. Like, like he's like, like he's putting a list together of like, well, on Mondays, don't ask dad, right? Like, I don't, I don't know exactly what his plan is. Or other days, he'll, he'll go to mom and he'll say, hey, mom, can I watch TV? And she'll say no. And then he'll come to me and he'll ask me and I'll say yes. And so then he'll go and watch TV and mom will find him and he'll, he'll, she'll be frustrated with him. And he'll say, well, dad told me I could. I just thought what dad said was okay, you know? Like he like tries to like pivot us. And I'm like, what is, what is he doing? You're seven, come on, man. Uh, and the more that I've dealt with this, the more that I've experienced this, the more that I've kind of begun to pick up on the ability to tell when he's asking a question that he already knows the answer to. Or maybe he's asking a question and he's got an answer, but it's the answer he didn't want, right? He's got some mixed intentions with these, with these questions that he's asking. And I think that, that Jesus had that same wisdom in his interaction with the lawyer as the lawyer begins with a rather simple question. The lawyer turns to Jesus and he says, Jesus, teacher, what do you think that I should do if I want to have an eternal relationship with God? What do you think I should do if I want to inherit eternal life? But Jesus, knowing that this man is a master of the law, just turns it back on him and goes, hang on a second, you've read it before. I know that you know the answer to this question. What do you think that it says? So the lawyer now, he's forced to respond, right? And so the lawyer stands up really firm. He, he puts his shoulders nice and high and he says, well, here's what I think. I think that if you want to inherit eternal life, that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the perfect answer. Like he gets an A plus, the lawyer crushes it. The combination of these two things are what we refer to as the great commandment. The first part, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. And the second part, you should love your neighbor as yourself, comes from Leviticus 9, 18. And this is the perfect answer because when you put these two things together, they, in a way, they, they represent, they are the perfect summary statement of God's expectation for humanity. If, if humans want to be in eternal relationship with God, then we would have to love God perfectly and love neighbor. Sometimes people say love people perfectly. So Jesus is like... I knew you knew the answer, right? He's like, yeah, great job. He commends the lawyer on his answer, and then he says, you got it. Do that, and you will live. But the lawyer, the lawyer came here to test him, right? He's not quite done yet, and he's, he's going to push in a little bit more, and he's going to get way more than he bargained for from Jesus, right? So he's here, and he just, he pushes in. He, Luke writes that seeking to justify himself, looking out at the crowd and seeking to prove that he had done these two things, that he had loved God perfectly and that he had loved neighbor perfectly, Luke writes that he asks Jesus the question, well, who is my neighbor? Maybe we have a difference of opinion on what a neighbor is, right? Jesus, who would you say is my neighbor? And this sets Jesus up to tell the story that we now refer to as the parable of the good Samaritan. Jesus sets this story that he's about to tell on something called the Jericho Road. I have a picture that I'll show you here in a second. The, the Jericho Road is no easy path. It's kind of an ancient highway. It's an 18-mile journey that connects the city of Jerusalem to the city of Jericho. If you 
wanted to get there, this is, this is the way that you would take. This is, this is no easy, in the summer, you'd be, you know, you could not carry enough water on this trail. I mean, it's, it's insane how difficult this path would be. And so Jesus says that a man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. We presume that he's a Jewish man. Jesus is teaching a Jewish audience. And so a Jewish man is traveling down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And immediately the crowd their, the wheels are spinning in their head because they realize something that maybe we wouldn't recognize right away. They know at that time that the common sense, the common understanding would be that you should never travel this road alone. Here's why. If you look at that, that picture, what would happen is that robbers would hide out in the cliffs of those mountains. And so as people were walking by and they're like, what in the world is going on? They would walk by, the robbers would notice that they're alone and they would jump out and they would get them. They would beat them, they'd take all of their stuff and they would either kill them or leave them there to die. This was not a good idea. So the, the audience immediately is like, oh no, this story's not gonna end well. And that's exactly what happens. Jesus says that a man was traveling down the road and the robbers jump out and they get him and they take all of his stuff. This is a death sentence for the Jewish man on this road. Nobody's gonna find you out here. He doesn't have his like, I've fallen and I can't get up, you know, necklace thing. He doesn't have any of that going on. He's, he's stuck, no one's, no one's coming to help him, right? But then Jesus introduces three characters to the story. Three people who are gonna have an opportunity to respond to the need. The first one Jesus introduces is a priest. Now, a priest, if we drew a connection from then to today, we would say that's like a pastor. Okay? So Jesus says that a pastor is traveling down the road and he sees the man in need. And you imagine the man lying on the ground, looks up at the pastor and is like, of all people, yes, nice, cool, thanks God. Like he's, he's really excited, this is his chance. But Jesus says that when the pastor sees him, he has a chance to respond to the need, but he chooses to walk by. Now keep in mind, you saw the picture. These trails are six to eight feet wide. This is not a, I, I saw, I think I saw a foot, but it was in the distance. Like, no, this guy's laying on the trail groaning, like, I'm gonna die, help me. But he steps by and chooses to walk around. Then Jesus introduces another character to the story, another person who's gonna get a chance to respond to the need. Jesus introduces a Levite. Now, a Levite is kind of like a, a temple assistant, if you will. If we drew a comparison to today, we might call this person a worship pastor. And so Jesus says the pastor comes and, and he sees the need and he chooses to, to walk by. And then now Jesus says that a worship pastor comes, but he gives us a different explanation. He says the worship pastor is walking down the road and he sees the man in need, but at risk of tearing his skinny jeans, bending down to help, he said, hey, that was a church joke. I'm really glad. I couldn't, I couldn't go without a worship pastor joke this morning. So. Jesus says that a Levite, where's John at? Uh, Jesus says that a Levite is walking down the road and he sees the man who is in need, but he chooses to walk by. He passes on the other side. It's at this point that Jesus introduces a third character to the story, a Samaritan. And it's at this point that the crowd begins to boo. Jesus says, and then a Samaritan, and the crowd just starts going crazy. They're booing like nuts. This sounds like when Michigan, you know, runs out of the tunnel at the shoe, you know what I'm saying? Like this is, Jews are not fans of Samaritans. That's what we need to know. They have a really complicated history, these two groups. They were together at one point, but now they're not. There's this history of like betrayal and violence that led to counter violence, that led to insults, and there's all kinds of different stuff that's happened. And so, 
Here's what the Jews are thinking. Jesus introduces a Samaritan, and all the people in the crowd begin to boo, and they think that they know the conclusion to this story. They think that the Samaritan man's going to be walking down the trail, and he's going to see the Jewish man lying here half dead, and he's going to think to himself, don't mind if I do, and like bend down and like roll him down the cliff. He's like, I'm going to finish the job. You know what I mean? That's what they think. The Samar- that's how they think the Samaritans think. They think, well, a great day for a Samaritan, a great Monday, a great way to start your day off is by ending it all for a Jewish person. That's how the Jews think of the Samaritans. But Jesus does something impossible. Jesus does something to the surprise of every single person in the audience that day. Jesus chooses to make the Samaritan the hero of the story. Jesus says that the Samaritan man is walking down and he sees the Jewish man in need and he gets off of his animal, presume that it's a donkey. And it says that he commits, he rushes to begin to help the man who is in need. It says he pulls out his olive oil and his wine, which tells us he's probably on his way to a meal. So he's, he's halting his plans for the moment. He begins to pour out his olive oil and wine. He's using them medicinally to try to help the man who is in need. Then once he, you can imagine like he's even like tearing off pieces of his clothing maybe, like I've got to help bandage this person. He's, try, he's committed to saving this guy's life. Once he kind of has him stable, he picks him up and it says he puts him on the back of his donkey and begins to lead them further down the road. Eventually they come across an inn, uh, and at the inn he chooses to book a room for the night, and he decides, you know, I'm going to stay here, and he sits with the man all night as he's trying to help him. He's trying to keep him back to life. He's bringing him water. He's doing everything that he can. Uh, He's just sitting here waiting, like, man, I'm trying to save this guy's life. He's committed to helping the man who was in need. He doesn't stop there, though. It says that in the morning he goes out and he he finds the innkeeper, the person in charge of the place, and he goes up and he hands him two denarii. This is enough money for this injured Jewish man to be able to stay at this inn for upwards of four weeks. He goes and says, I'm going to pay so that he does not have to take one step out of this place until he's back to 100%. And then he even goes beyond that. He says, oh, also, I want you to take care of him, and I want you to buy him absolutely everything that he needs. They took his clothes, get him more clothes. He needs water, make sure he's got that. If he needs alcohol, wine, he needs to continue to heal this stuff on his body. Buy him everything that he needs, and he does not need to leave here until he's back to 100%. This is crazy. (laughs) This is this is an extravagant gift. He even says, hey, by the way, if this money isn't enough, when, you co- when I come back, I'll pay the rest. Just give him whatever he needs. This is an open tab. This is an incredible gift of self-sacrifice from the enemy to the man in need. Or we could say it the other way, from the Samaritan to the enemy. This is incredible. This is lavish love. So then Luke writes that, that Jesus turns back to the lawyer. And you'll remember that the lawyer's question was, who is my neighbor? But see, Jesus here, Jesus flips his whole question back on him. He does a little reverse reverse. He says, well, hang on a second. Who in the story proved to be the neighbor? See, by changing the question, asking it that way, Jesus asserts that being neighborly is a response that we show to anyone who is in need. A neighbor is not a person. It's not the person who lives next door or two houses down or the person, I don't know, that we went to high school with that we're still really close friends with. That's, a neighbor is not a person. A neighbor is a type of action that we show in response to anyone who is in need. Jesus changes the whole question. 
And then he looks at the lawyer, says, who proved to be the neighbor? And the lawyer responds and he says, the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan. He couldn't do it. Jesus ends their interaction by saying, now go and do likewise. I think as we're, as we're sitting here today, we can almost feel the nervous energy of the lawyer as he walks away from Jesus with this impossible standard of perfection, right? Like, who loves perfectly like that? Of course, of course, like we, we, we're all capable, we all do compassionate things from time to time, but who loves perfectly like that always? With every need, right, to an enemy, Remember, the lawyer goes to Jesus, he's looking to justify himself. He's looking to, to prove that he had done this. He wants a list of people, but instead, Jesus responds to him. He, he shares with him a similar principle that he's already taught. Back in Luke chapter 6, verse 32 through 35, and I just want to read this for you. I want to read you what Jesus said there. Here's what Jesus said. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who, you, who from you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. See, just as the religious leaders in the story, the priest and the Levite, had failed God's standard of perfection, this lawyer would as well. And I think that we can feel that nervous, overwhelmed energy as he walks away from Jesus. It's at this point that I think our, maybe our traditional understanding of this story should be challenged a little bit. Remember, if we, if we approach this story, the, the moral and the ethical applications of this are obvious, right? I could have come here today and I could have said, okay, well, here's, here's the story and here's the, here's the plan. This week, Christians, Jesus followers, our plan is that we're going we're gonna to try harder to love people better. Right? I'm great with words, as you can tell. We're going to try harder to love people better. And I think that we would have said, okay, that sounds like a plan. I think that we could do that. But I wouldn't necessarily be teaching you anything new. I think we can all know that that's the expectation. You know, in fact, let's try this, okay? If you're in the room today and you would say, you know what, I know that I could do a better job at being compassionate towards the people in my life. I know that I could do a better job at responding to the needs around me. Just do me a favor, real quick. We're going to take a poll. Just raise your hand. If that's who you say, I know that I could do a better job at being compassionate. And just, just look around real quick. We're in trouble. We need some more compassionate people at life. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, here's, here's the truth. The truth. If you and I are holding ourselves to this standard of perfection, we will always find ourselves crippled by our inability to love perfectly always. We could have come here today and said, hey, here's the, here's the three points, the story of the Good Samaritan and the three-point response, three steps to becoming a great Samaritan. Uh, we're going to see the needs around us, step one. Step two, we're going to feel, we're going to have a heart for those people in need. And then step three, we're going to respond to the needs, right? See, feel, respond, three steps. I think we go, okay, that's, that's fair. I think I, can, I think I can do that. But again, that leaves us short. Those are amazing things. That's part of the Christian life. But again, just like the lawyer, the truth is that you and I will never live up 
to this standard of perfection. We'll never be able to love this perfectly always. So then how do we respond? Well, I think it starts with going back to the story and the greater context for the story. See, in Luke chapter 9, 51, Luke writes that Jesus has officially begun his journey to the cross. So after Luke 9, 51, everything else that happens until Jesus is hanging on the cross is part of his journey. So even now, while Jesus is having this exchange with the lawyer, Jesus himself is on his way to the cross. And I think that Luke recognized the similarity between what Jesus was on his way to accomplish for humanity and the story of the Good Samaritan. What do we know about Jesus? Well, we know that, that Jesus, at great cost to himself, came down from heaven to meet us where we are in need of a savior. See, humanity was also half dead on the road of life. We were trapped, we were stuck in the reality of being physically alive, but spiritually dead in need of a savior. And Jesus came to where we are. He sacrificed beyond measure. He gave his life so that you and I could be forgiven, that we could enter into relationship with God. He knew that we wouldn't measure up. And he said, don't worry about it. I've got it anyways. He loved us lavishly beyond measure, beyond anything that we could ever earn, beyond anything that we ever deserved. Jesus gave us grace and mercy that we could have never even hoped for. Who loves perfectly like that? Oh, Jesus does. Jesus did for you and for me and for the lawyer who, despite his greatest efforts, would never measure up to God's standard. So how do we respond? Well, I think that we respond by doing what the lawyer should have. See, what the lawyer should have done in that moment was immediately right there dropped his attempt to justify himself and made the decision to follow Jesus. He should have realized that he was totally hopeless without Jesus. I think that all of us, you and I, should all get to a place at some point in our lives where we recognize that we are that person who is half dead on the road of life, physically alive, spiritually dead, and we should make the decision to follow Jesus. We should say, God, I know that I'm not good enough. I know that I don't measure up, and I'm so thankful that you sacrificed for me, that you love me anyways, that you, that you went through all of this just to have a relationship with me. We should drop our attempt to justify ourselves and say, God, I need you. God, I wanna, I wanna follow you. Then what? Well then, once we've made the decision to follow Jesus, something incredible starts to happen. Paul, in Galatians chapter two, verse 20, here's how he described this effect. Here's what Paul had to say. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. As Christians, we should commit to spending time daily reflecting on God's lavish love for us. And as we do that, he begins to work in us and through us. And then we begin to love the people around us like he loves us. Then we begin to, to see the needs around us and to feel for the needs around us and respond to the needs around us. But it's not under our own effort. It's not under our own strength. It's through Christ who lives in us. It's through his power and, and his strength. Dean referenced this earlier, but about uh, 13 months ago, my wife and I moved here from Arizona. And uh, 
just before that, we found ourselves in a pretty difficult season of life. I would say that it was, it was the first time that we had really a, just, it was a, an emotionally and immensely difficult season. I found myself for the first time coming home from the office just like, uh, I felt like I needed to vent for an hour just to get off all the emotional baggage that I picked up that day. You ever been there before? Like, I felt totally unfair to my wife. And I remember one night specifically, I was just so frustrated. So I got up out of bed and I, I walked outside. It's the Arizona winter, so it's like 95 degrees out or so, you know what I mean? And uh, just walk outside. And I just began to pray out my frustration. You ever done that? God, what are you doing? Of all the ways that this could be happening, why is this the way? Why is this, God, I'm, I'm, I need you to show up. Like, what are you doing? Just at least, if you could show me what you're doing, I'll be good. Do it your way, but just let me in on the plan. God, what, what is supposed to be happening here? And I remember at some point during that prayer, I just remember saying something like this. I just began to say, God, would you give me your heart for these people? Would you help me begin to see these people that I'm struggling with the way that you would see them? Would you help me begin to respond to them the way that you would respond to them? And maybe that sounds good, but again, the truth is that was prayed out in total frustration because I had reached a place where I knew that there was nothing else in me. I, I had tapped out the end of my own effort to be Christ-like. It was over, right? After this point, I felt like I had reached a place after, after this frustration that no other response in me would have been Christ-like. It was, I was going to respond not Christ-like, right? I was going to give them a little piece of my mind, right? As people saying, God, the only way to get around this is if you show up and you give me your heart. Did it work out perfectly? No. <laughs> No, because I'm not perfect, and I know that I'll never measure up to God's standard of perfection, but I think that you would be, as I was, I think we will be amazed to see what happens and to see how God uses that when we begin to pray that over our lives. When we begin to approach God with a humble heart that says, God, less of me, more of you. Would you give me your heart? Would you, would you take over? Would you help me to see the way that you see? Would you help me to respond the way that you would respond? Because at the end of the day, our coworkers, they don't need us. Our difficult family members, they don't need us. Our spouses don't need us. Dare I say on Father's Day, our kids, our kids don't need us. Even the person in need doesn't need us. They need Jesus working through us. That's how we begin to see the label of neighbor applied to our lives. As we approach God humbly and say, God, not me. They don't need me. They need you. Would you just work through me? As I close today, I want to remind you of a couple of applications for you. First is, as we continue to pray through the book of Luke together, remember, we're doing this thing, we're in May, we were reading the book of Luke together, and now in June, we're praying it up, we've set alarms on our phones to every day at 10.02 a.m., no one's went off today, so great job uh, in the service at 10.02 a.m., maybe 10.02 p.m., uh, we're praying through Luke 10.2 together. What I would encourage you as we continue to do that, to spend time in that reflecting on God's love for you, that we would spend time reflecting on God's love for us and asking God to give us his heart for the people around us. We follow the same pattern that we saw in Galatians 2.20. 
We allow ourselves to be captivated by God's love for us, and then he uses that, and he begins to work in us and through us, and we begin to look like Jesus' example. We begin to look like the example that we have in the Good Samaritan, but not through our own power, and not through our own strength, and not through our own effort, through what God is doing in us. You could keep it simple. Maybe that prayer looks something like, God, would you give me your heart for my coworkers this week? God, would you help me to see the needs around me daily this week like you see the needs around me daily? God, would you help me to respond to my kids in compassion the way that you would respond to my kids in compassion? Or maybe today you're sitting in here and today is the day that you make the decision to do what the lawyer should have. You make the decision to, to drop everything and say, Jesus, I want to follow you. You confess, God, I, I know that I'm not good enough. I know that, that I'm not perfect and I'll never be. And God, here's what I want to accept your sacrifice for me. I want to accept your love for me, your forgiveness for me. I want to accept your invitation to a personal relationship. Maybe today is the day that you decide to follow Jesus, to do what the lawyer should have. If that's you, and in just a second, I'm gonna pray a, just pray a quick prayer, and you can pray it along with me. You can just say what I say right there in your head. Just a, just a moment between you and God. You don't have to pray it out loud. But again, today could be that day, the best decision that you'll ever make, the decision to follow Jesus. If that's you, you could just, you could just pray something like this. Church, let's, let's pray together. God, thank you for leaving heaven and coming to earth so that I could have a relationship with you. Jesus, today I'm asking that you would forgive me of my sins. I'm asking that you would be the Lord of my life. Jesus, I want to be in personal relationship with you. And God, today as a church, we, we take this time to say thank you. Thank you for how you love us and, and how you've sacrificed for us beyond measure, how you left everything at great cost to yourself so that I might be free, so that we might have a relationship with you. Lord, we ask that this week as we reflect on your love for us, as we reflect on your sacrifice for us, I pray that, God, you would give us your heart for the people around us, that, that we would begin to see the needs around us the way that you see the needs around us. God, I pray that as a church we would continue to respond to the needs of our community the way that you would respond to the needs of our community. God, you are so good, and we love you so much. God, I love you so much. Your name, amen.